Good morning. Leviticus 18, 1 through 6, 18 through 30, and 20, 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanliness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman it is an abomination. You shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punish its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. The word of the Lord. Everything in the Bible, ultimately, is personal. But some things in the Bible just go straight to our innermost core. It's like holy ground. Uh, this is one of those places. We're going to talk about some things today that are deeply personal, intimate, vulnerable, and that have been the cause of unconscionable harm and abuse by the church. So I'll be honest, I tremble to set foot here. Um, in fact, I almost didn't do this series on Leviticus because of this passage. And not just this passage, but because of one verse in this passage. And I'm sure we all know which verse that is. It's the one about same-sex intercourse. 
In fact, as I was preparing this week, I kept thinking that preaching on this passage in our culture, it's kind of like doing jumping jacks on a landmine. If, if you're not really careful, somebody's going to get blown up. Um, but it's not just same-sex intercourse. It's human sexuality, human sex in general, which is a huge issue, not just in our culture, but throughout human experience. So avoiding it isn't helpful for anybody. But even more than that, I hope that one of the things we've been seeing so far in this series is that certain passages in the Bible, um, the really troublesome ones that if we do the hard work of trying to understand what they're really saying, that oftentimes it's the most troublesome passages that end up being the most transformative, the most life-giving passages. That has been my experience so many times um, that I've just grown to accept it when, uh, expect it whenever I open the Bible, and I hope you do too. Um, but I don't assume you do. In fact, I'm sure there are probably those of you here this morning and you're distrustful of the Bible, perhaps skeptical. Yeah, some things in the Bible are acceptable to you, but other things seem suspect, maybe even abhorrent. Um, perhaps it's um, things that the Bible says about sex. And if that's you, that is really understandable, especially with a passage like this. Um, but what if... What if this passage is saying things to us that we may not want to know, but we need to know? What if, um, what if this passage is like uh, a bitter rind on the outside, but out inside there's sweet, life-giving fruit? C.S. Lewis used to say all the time that um, whenever we encounter a difficulty in Scripture, we can expect that a discovery awaits us. Are we open to a discovery this morning? I, I want to be careful and gentle with what I say. I know that we all bring um, hurts and wounds and fears as well as hopes and dreams and yearnings to a passage like this. So this is holy ground. Let's take off our shoes. But let's also take hold of each other's hands as we walk through this together and ask three questions. Uh, what is God saying here? Why is God saying it? And what does it mean for us today? Okay? What is God saying? Why is he saying it? And what does it mean for us today? Are we ready? Um, first, what is God saying here? Um, well, remember, first of all, that everything, and I mean everything that happens in Leviticus, centers around this tent of meeting. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. Now they're out in the wilderness, and God says to them, build a tent. The tent is the place of God's presence because the tent is a reconstitution of the Garden of Eden. Yet that is one of the most crucial things to understand about Leviticus. The tent is a reconstitution of the Garden of Eden. In fact, turn to your neighbor and say that. The I'm serious. The tent is a reconstitution of the Garden of Eden. So everything, remember the story in Genesis. God's creation is falling apart because of human sin, but then God says, I'm going to do a new creation. The tent is the beginning of God's new creation. So everything we've seen up till now in the first half of Leviticus, the sacrifices, 
the priests, the laws about ritual purity, all of that, it's all about what needs to happen for God to welcome us inside the tent to find transformation and a new way to live. God is welcoming broken, wounded people who have been in bondage to false masters inside the tent to be transformed. That's the first half of Leviticus. Now, the second half of Leviticus uh, is all about bringing the life, the new creation life of the tent to the world outside of the tent. If we don't understand that about Leviticus, we simply will not understand anything that God is saying here. It's all about bringing the life of the tent to the world outside of the tent, okay? Now, this passage has three main sections. The first and the third are like bookends in which God is urging his people to walk in his ways, to behave as he wants. The middle section is where we get these laws and these commands about how God wants us to behave sexually. Now, there is one command in there about child sacrifice. God talks in greater detail about that in chapter 20. We're not going to talk about that today, except to say, don't sacrifice your children. But there are six, (laughs) amen, and that means to career or cause as well as, you know, to a God, which careers and causes can be God's. But there are six things here that God says, don't do these things, sexually speaking. Incest, polygamy, um, sex during menstruation, adultery, same-sex intercourse, and bestiality, okay? That's what God is saying here. Now, um, obviously, the one that stands out to us is the prohibition against same-sex intercourse. And I'm going to talk about that in a bit. But what heads the list? Incest. So if you look at verse 6, it says, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. Now, we didn't print the whole list, but here's the list of people God says, don't have sex with them. Your mother, your stepmother, your aunt, sister, sister-in-law, daughter, daughter-in-law, stepdaughter, granddaughter, and granddaughter-in-law. In ancient culture, men could pretty much have sex with whoever they wanted. In this passage, God is addressing men, and he's saying, look, you live in close proximity to all kinds of close female relatives. I don't want you to take advantage of them. I don't want you to violate them. Basically, God is saying, men, hands off. I mean, essentially, Leviticus is really, it's like the first Me Too movement. In fact, um, I was reading a story this week by a woman named Minnie Warburton, who was sexually abused by her father when she was a young girl. And uh, she's a writer, an uh, artist, a storyteller. Um, She says that when she was young, she would read portions of Leviticus from time to time in church, and that none of it ever really spoke to her. It never really made any sense to her, just kind of one ear out the other, until she read this passage. And then, well, let me tell you how she describes it. She says, I remember very clearly the moment Sunlight coming in the window onto my desk and the words leaping out at me, you shall not have intercourse with, and then all these incest taboos. One after another, I slammed the book shut. I was shocked. I had no idea that was in the Bible. 
I never knew that what my Bible-believing father did was condemned by his God before he ever did it. But there it was, clear as anything. I will never be able to explain what that moment was like, that discovery of Leviticus 18. I wanted to call up everyone I knew and say, it was wrong what my father did. It says so right here in the Bible. Therapists had told me, my own instincts told me, everything had told me, yet nothing told me the way Leviticus told me, that it was wrong, condemned, hateful in the eyes of God. It was wrong, truly, truly wrong. And for the first time, I felt utterly and absolutely vindicated. For the first time, I felt clean. I felt absolved. I felt released. So right out of the gate, God is saying that one of the most life-giving, joyful experiences in humanity that if used wrongly can become one of the most destructive experiences that can afflict human beings, that sex is powerful and that we should be careful about how we use it. So as we look at the other prohibitions here, um, you know, most of them seem pretty obvious to us. Verse 18, polygamy. Verse 20, adultery. Verse 23, bestiality. So even in our culture, you know, it's not really a reach for us to say, yeah, we don't think sex should be used those ways either. Now, sex during menstruation, no one really knows. There are lots of theories why God is so strong on this. But again, the one that really stands out to us is this prohibition against same-sex intercourse. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, I'm going to talk later about what all of this means for us, practically speaking. But for right now, let me just say a few things about this particular verse. And the first is this. Um, Conservative and liberal scholars all agree that this verse and another one in Leviticus 20 is um, it's prohibiting consensual sex between two men. Nobody disagrees about that. The question is, does this prohibition still apply today? As I've studied this, as I've wrestled with this, and I have wrestled with it, um, I believe it does still apply. In fact, as we move into the Gospels with Jesus and into the rest of the New Testament, it, it appears that the New Testament continues and even strengthens uh, this view that God's purposes for sex are bounded within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. But here's the thing. I don't get to judge the motives and intentions of other Christians who disagree. That There are many Christians with a high view of Scripture. That means they take the Bible seriously. They, um, they want to live fully under the authority of the Bible. Christians with a high view of Scripture disagree about this. That, that is something that has actually been happening in our world over the last several years. I don't get to question their motives and intentions. I certainly don't get to judge the way other people live. God calls all of us as Christians to to treat one another with charity and love, even in the midst of our disagreements. So yes, we should study this question. Yes, we should talk about this together. There are really great resources available to help us to do that. But as we do that, we should treat each other with charity, not judgment. Secondly, um, in this passage, God is, is calling practices abominable. He never calls people abominable. We can't stress that strongly enough. God does not call people abominable. 
okay? He's saying, don't do this, all right? Um, he's not talking about someone's sexual orientation. He's not talking about um, how someone identifies. Those are important questions, but it's not what God is talking about in this passage. He, he's, he, God never calls people abominable. Yes, we're all broken. Yes, we're all sinful. But, but God's word itself is the most affirming thing we can ever look to because God's word itself defines every human being as created in the image of God with inherent worth, value, dignity, and glory, which leads to the third thing we need to say, which is that the church needs to repent of the abominable ways that it has treated people in the LGBTQ community. Especially its hyper-focus on this one issue, oftentimes to the exclusion of so many other things the Bible talks about a lot more. Things like idolatry, and especially in our age, political idolatry, whether on the left or on the right. Um, things like failing to care for the poor. Things like failing to uh, protect the vulnerable and the oppressed. Those are the things that God's word is really strong on and he focuses us on over and over and over again. So as I've studied and reflected over the years um, on how God calls the church to engage the world politically and in the public square, uh, I'm of the conviction, and I'm just telling you my own personal conviction here, but this is my reflection on scripture, that God's call on the church politically is to protect the vulnerable and to model ethics, not to mandate ethics, okay? To protect the vulnerable is our, is our primary political calling. And that means that not only do I not believe that the church should be legally trying to oppose same-sex marriage, we should be advocating for and supporting and protecting the LGBTQ community. That if someone could lose their job or their home or some other civil right simply because they're gay, the church should be fighting for those people. That's part of our call in this world. Now, friends, let's kind of wrap all of this together. One of the main things God is saying here in this passage is that what we do with our physical bodies has an impact on the physical world. So, if, you know, in that last section of the passage where God says the Canaanites practiced these things, the land vomits them out. If you practice these things, the land will vomit you out. That's really strong language. It's hard language, but, but it's actually one of the main themes in the whole Bible. So if you go back to Genesis 3, in, in creation, human rebellion led to the breakdown of the whole world. So in Genesis 3, you see um, that work is now toilsome and burdensome, thorns and thistles, that childbirth has become not just excruciatingly painful, but dangerous. That, that the breakdown of the world as a result of human sin includes things like sickness and disaster and poverty and war and violence, that human sin has led to the breakdown of the material created world. So as you travel through scripture, you see, for instance, in Romans 8, Paul talks about all of creation is groaning. It, creation is groaning for the redemption of humanity, that just as human sin is connected to the breakdown of the world, so also the healing of humanity is connected to the healing of the world. That what we do with our physical bodies has an impact on this physical world. So as we bring the life, the new creation life of the tent, into the world outside of the tent, what God is saying here is that our sexual practices matter. They make a difference. And he's putting very specific boundaries 
around those things. And that leads to our second question. How are we doing so far? Are we okay? Some of, we, some of us may not be. I want to be sensitive to that. The, the first question is, what is God saying here? He's putting boundaries around sex. Secondly, why is he saying it? Remember, as we mentioned, there are three main sections in this passage. Um, we just talked about the middle section in which God is giving us the boundaries around sex. But right at the very beginning, before God ever tells them what to do, before God ever says, here's how I want you to live, he gives them the reason. So what is the very first thing God says? If you look at um, verse 1, it says, Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God. And then what's the last thing God says? Verse 30, so keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs. Why? I am the Lord your God. God repeats this over and over again throughout the passage. I am the Lord your God. You know what this is? This is a callback to Exodus chapters 19 and 20. It's one of the most famous episodes in the whole Bible. God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and then he brought them to Mount Sinai. Very famous passage. Um, at Mount Sinai, God comes down on the mountain. There's thunder, there's fire, there's lightning, there's smoke, there's trumpets blasting, there's Charlton Heston. Um, wait. <laughs> No, Charlton Heston just played Moses in the movie version. But on Mount Sinai, that's where God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. Have we heard of those? The Ten Commandments, God is telling Israel, here's how I want you to live. But before God ever tells them one thing to do, the very first thing he tells them before any of that is, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before he ever tells them one thing to do, he tells them what he has already done for them. Friends, that's the gospel. Traditional religion says, if you obey God, if you live a good life, then God will love you and be nice to you. That the, the gospel is the exact opposite. The gospel says that God has already loved you and rescued you. And now the way we live is actually our response to that love, not a way of getting it in our life. So in this passage in Mount Sinai, when God gives Israel the Ten Commandments, he's telling them how to live. Whenever God says, I am the Lord your God, he's always calling up that story. He's always reminding them of, of what he's done for them and what has God done for Israel. Yes, he rescued them from slavery, but for what? The answer is God rescued Israel from slavery for, do you want to know the answer? For covenant. Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, all of that is God bringing Israel into covenant with himself. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is a legal agreement, but of the most deeply personal kind. It's, it's far more personal than a contract, but also far more um, binding than uh, a mere promise. So that when God comes to Israel and he says, I am the Lord your God, he's, he's bringing them into covenant. Now, um, the only thing in our culture that's comparable to that is marriage. And in reality, that's exactly how God sees it too. It's a marriage. 
Because if we go back to Exodus 19 and 20, go back to Mount Sinai, God says to Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. He says, I brought you to myself. Now, if you fully obey me and, and, and you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations of the world, you will be my treasured possession. Friends, when God says, I brought you to myself, that's marriage language. So for instance, in Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates the world, he's looking around at everything he may, he's made. He says, this is good, this is good, this is good, until he gets to Adam, who's all alone, and he says, not good. And so he creates the very first woman, Eve, and it says, he brought her to him. He brought her to him, marriage language. In fact, when Adam first lays eyes on Eve, he's so overwhelmed that he breaks out into song. At last. <laughs> Read it in Genesis 2. It's right there. You know, Etta James was not the first one to sing this. Whenever God says, I brought you to myself, that's marriage language. And friends, marriage is always, always about closing off any other options. Marriage is always, it creates boundaries. It says, I give myself to you and not to anyone else. So in this passage, when God says, I am the Lord your God, he's saying, I'm your husband. In fact, throughout the Bible, God's constantly saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. You are my bride. What God is constantly talking about his relationship with his people like a husband and a wife. It's always marriage language. And friends, marriage is always, always about closing off any other options, about creating boundaries, about what we do, including our sexual lives. And friends, that's really difficult for us because we live in a culture that rejects boundaries. We, we live in a culture that says boundaries, especially sexual boundaries, are inherently oppressive, that they, um, that they limit our freedom. And if there's one thing that defines our modern Western secular culture, it's freedom. We see freedom as the ultimate expression of human dignity and, and the dignity of, of being an autonomous individual. We, so we reject the boundaries, but God says, I want you to close off all your other options. I want you to hold up more boundaries in your life. I want you to be devoted to me, committed to me. So notice at the end of our passage, we printed a verse from the end of chapter 20 um, in which God says, basically, he says, I want you to be mine. Do you see that? That you should be mine. And that's not just corny, mawkish Valentine's Day greeting card language. God is saying, I want you to be mine because I am already yours. I want you to give yourself to me because I have already given myself to you. And friends, that is exactly what Jesus has came, come to be and to do for us. He is the ultimate bridegroom. Because when Jesus began his public ministry, he was constantly saying things that were getting people really riled up because the things he was saying indicated to people that Jesus was claiming to be the God of Mount Sinai, the God who came down, because he would say things like, I am the bridegroom. And all the Israelites knew what he was saying when he said that, that he was saying, I am the God of Mount Sinai. I am the bridegroom. I am your husband. He was always saying things like that. In fact, you know, when God asks us, 
to close off every other option and to give ourselves to him. He's not asking us to do something or anything that he hasn't already done for us because that's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. When they nailed his hands and feet to the cross, Jesus was closing off his options. He was ta- in essence, Jesus was taking his wedding vows. He was saying, I'm binding myself to you. I'm limiting myself. He's looking at you and at me and all of us and saying, I'm committing myself. I'm binding myself. I'm sacrificing myself. He's pleading with us saying, will you be mine? Because I am yours. I'm giving myself to you. Now I want you to give yourself to me. He is the ultimate bridegroom and he calls us to covenant commitment. So friends, when God puts boundaries around marriage, the reason, I mean, around sex, the reason he does that is because sex is always the expression of a covenant commitment. Sex is always the expression of covenant commitment. So that if there's no commitment, if there's no covenant, God is saying there shouldn't be any sex. Because to have sex outside of that covenant commitment is a way of saying, I'm giving myself to you with your body when you haven't done it with any other part of your life. It's a way of keeping your options open. Not shutting down the options, but keeping them open. We don't want to have any boundaries on our lives, but the reason God puts boundaries on sex is because sex is an expression of covenant commitment, and there is no greater expression of that commitment than the shed blood of Jesus on his cross. Now listen, um, Sex can be one of the most wonderfully life-giving things in human experience if used within that commitment. If it's used with outside of that commitment, it can lead to tremendous heartbreak and disintegration, and some of you have personal firsthand experience with that. Now, can God redeem that? Absolutely. But through the shed blood of Christ, he redeems that. Now, listen, we need to keep moving. There is so much more that could and should be said about the biblical vision of sex. We just don't have time. But um, I want to look at one more question. We've seen, what, what is God saying? He, he's saying, our physical bodies have an impact on the physical world. There should be boundaries around what we do. Why is he saying it? Because Sex is is the ultimate, it's an expression of covenant commitment. God is our covenant God. He's married to us. He's saying, I want your relationship in in marriage to, to express your relationship with me. It's devotion. It's committed. It's closing off any other options. Now, lastly, what does all of this mean for us today? Now, we're a pretty diverse group in different places in life, so let me actually address some comments to um, different groups of us. And first, if you are exploring faith in Jesus, or maybe you're even somebody you would consider yourself pretty skeptical about Christianity, um, uh, then this passage probably has things that you would affirm, but also things that are probably problematic for you. Um, and that's understandable if that's the case, especially when it comes to this notion of putting boundaries around sex, because as I mentioned, we live in a culture that says boundaries are inherently oppressive. Boundaries limit our freedom as, as unique individuals, and, and it's an assault on our dignity as, as autonomous individuals. Now, if, if that's how you feel about it, if that's um, what you believe, then that's understandable. But... Um, If human rights, individual rights, and individual dignity, human dignity, are important to you, then I want to encourage you to keep in mind 
that, um, that, that there are vast numbers of historians and philosophers and sociologists, not Christians necessarily. They're not trying to advocate for a Christian agenda, but they regularly, consistently point out that our Western secular culture's emphasis on human rights, individual rights, human dignity, is a direct legacy of Christianity's impact in this world. That means that we can't reject what the Bible says about sexuality unless we're relying on ideas that come to us from the Bible itself. We can't reject one without rejecting the other. And that leads to the second encouragement I have for you. If you're exploring faith in Jesus, then yes, at some point, you are going to have to reckon with how the Bible is calling you to live. But we don't start there. The place to begin is, who is Jesus? We don't, we don't begin, it's not a helpful place to begin, well, what is God telling me to do? How is he calling me to live? What does he want me to do? That's not how God started on Mount Sinai. He didn't begin with, here's what you must do. He began with, here's who I am and what I've done for you. So the place to begin really is, who is Jesus? Because if he is the risen Lord, then he has authority over how you live. But if he's not the risen Lord, then it doesn't matter what the Bible says. Live however you want. But a lot of times, if there are things in our lives that, that we don't want to give those parts of our life to God, really, that's just showing us what our real God is. Every single God you worship, whether it's some kind of spiritual God, or whether it's work, or money, or career, or family, or romance, or reputation, or whatever it might be, every single God is going to demand all of your life Jesus is the only God who gave his life for you. Now, secondly, if you're married, then you're good to go, right? Everything's perfect. We don't need to talk about you. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> marriage can be, for many people, a very frustrating, lonely, disappointing, and oftentimes even a destructive place. So if you're struggling in marriage, then I want to exhort you this morning that finding relief from your struggles outside of sexual fidelity to your partner is only going to make the struggles worse. But even more than that, I want to encourage you this morning that if you are struggling in your marriage, that um, we're committed to making this church a place where it's safe to struggle. This world is a broken place. We are all of us broken people. But remember what the tent is. The tent is the place where, where broken, wounded, sinful people who've been in bondage to false masters can come inside into the presence of God and find healing and renewal for their lives. If you're struggling in your marriage, it's okay. Jesus loves you. We love you. You're in the right place and we'll walk with you. Okay? Um, thirdly, if you're single, and that's most of us here this morning, if you're single, um, I want to encourage you that singleness is one of the most exalted vocations in all of Scripture. I know a lot of times in the church, um, church people can make an idol out of marriage and treat single people as less than, and that's wrong. That's certainly not biblical. But God says that, that singleness is one of the most honorable, beautiful, and, and valuable things in all of Scripture. Jesus was single. He wasn't living a diminished life. Paul was single. He was not living a less than flourishing life. Singleness is an exalted vocation, but that doesn't make it 
easier, especially if you want to be married. I remember, you know, so I didn't become a Christian until I was 30 years old. And then I didn't get married until I was literally one week shy of my 40th birthday. So I spent my early 30s and my mid-30s and into my late 30s. The prayer on my lips was, how long, O Lord? (laughs) Being single, when you want to be married, being single can be a really, really difficult place to be. But as much as being single is difficult, being celibate is really hard too. Being chaste, being sexually faithful to the Lord Jesus out of a commitment to how he calls us to live. It's really hard to do that. That is not an easy way to live. So if you've made mistakes, if you struggle in this area, again, you're in the right place. There is not a person in this room who doesn't struggle, and that includes sexually. Every single one of us, because we are broken, sinful people that affects every, every area of our life, that means every single one of us is broken sexually. So you're in the right place. Now, I know that if you have made mistakes, if you have struggled, that oftentimes can lead to um, shame and self-condemnation. Now, I want to encourage you this morning that, that if you feel grief over that, that grief you experience is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is the presence of God in your life, at work, in your life, even in the midst of your shame. So I would encourage you this morning, let your grief drive you further and deeper into the arms of a loving father. Go run to him. It's like the prodigal son running into the arms of the father. I mean, the father running to the son. Before the son could even get his little prepared speech out of his lips, the father just wrapped him up in his arms and was kissing him all up and down. That's the father's love for you. Let your grief drive you deeper into the arms of the father. Don't let your shame keep you away from him. And and especially, let me now speak specifically to those who maybe you're gay, Um, lesbian, bisexual, queer, same-sex attracted, however you describe that, but you want to follow Jesus and you are committed to the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality, I want to encourage you this morning that, that God honors you in your commitment. That can be one of the most difficult places to be in the church because not only are you getting hit from the culture, You're getting hit from a lot of people in the church. And I want you to know that we're committed to making this a church that has your back. That we will support you and walk with you in this. Because as as difficult as it is for single straight Christians, you know, at least there's a hope. There's never a guarantee. There's never a promise. I remember when I was single in my 30s thinking, you know, I don't know. That God God never promised me a wife. I don't know that that's in my future, but, but there's a hope. But, but for those of you who are same-sex attracted or, or however you want to identify that and committed to following Jesus, things are a little different for you. Because yes, there are people whose orientations have changed. They've shifted. But that experience is rare. And we're not being fair or honest or true to the experience of, of most people if we don't acknowledge that that there are thousands upon thousands more people who have prayed and prayed and prayed for change and nothing's changed. And as I've talked to my friends who are in that position, one of the things I hear over and over again is that it's not just the fear of not having sex. It's the fear of, of being alone potentially for the rest of your life of not having that someone special in your life, that someone to 
make breakfast with in the morning or to hold hands with in the park or to laugh at a joke that only the two of you get. The fear of not having that in your life can be overwhelming to people. But this is where we need to remember that every single one of us who follows Jesus, we need to remember that saying no, closing off our options to some created embodied good in this life always involves a much bigger yes to Jesus. Because there is no such thing as an authentic Christian life that doesn't involve closing off our options in one way or another. But we do not do it alone. Jesus told, I mean, Peter told Jesus, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. Everything. And Jesus said, Peter, nobody's left home or family or anything for my sake and the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold more in this life, along with persecution, but in the age to come, eternal life. Friends, that means that we don't do this alone. We do it as the body of Christ together, that we rejoice with one another when we're rejoicing, but we hold each other when we're weeping. We lift each other up. We hold each other. When you don't think you can take another step, that there would be people there to hold you and walk with you and encourage you and be there for you, that we were people here who give ourselves to one another because Christ has given himself for us and to us. Friends, yes, we're waiting. Some of you are really waiting in this life and in this world. But if Jesus is the true bridegroom, and he is, then Jesus is waiting too. Jesus is still waiting for his bride. He's closed off all of his other options, and he's waiting for that one day, that great day at the end of, of recorded history, when he will consummate his relationship with his church. And until that day, Jesus is waiting too. He says, I belong to you. I've given myself to you. I am yours, that you should be mine. Are you his? And will you wait for him and with him? Let's pray.